invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you here, it's on page 975. And if you need a Bible, uh, raise your hand and our brother Warren uh, can, of course, bring you one. It's important that we see uh, this for our own, for ourselves in God's Word, what he would say to us. Also, if you're visiting, we've been in a series through Galatians, so working our way verse by verse uh, through this letter. Uh, Lord willing, we have three more sermons in Galatians um, as we come to this uh, final chapter, chapter 6 here. And one last thing before we read. Um, uh, In the bulletin, it says uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. Uh, but we'll only be looking at verses 1 through 5. Um, there's a lot here to unpack that I thought would be helpful for us, and uh, so we'll only look at verses 1 through 5. This week, we'll consider 6 through 10. Uh, next week, if I'm preaching, I don't remember the schedule, but we'll see if Pastor Paul or myself is preaching. So Galatians chapter 6, uh, beginning at verse 1, we'll read to verse 5. This is the holy and inspired word of God. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load." so far from God's holy word. Let's pray that he might bless this word to us. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for the light of your word. We pray that the light of your word would lead us to Christ, uh, that we might look to him by faith, and that as we look to Christ, we ourselves would be transformed um, in the way in which we relate to one another, that we truly would bear one another's burdens as uh, the people of Christ, knowing that it's Christ who has borne our burden as the one who has delivered us from the present evil age. And so, Father, bless your word to us. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the heart of what Paul is getting at here in these five verses uh, comes in verse 2. The exhortation, the command to the church then and to us today, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. And that's going to be uh, kind of the main theme that we're going to be developing uh, today under three points. Uh, First, we're going to consider Christ, the burden bearer. Second, Satan, the burdener. And then thirdly, the church called to bear one another's burdens. And so our first point that we want to consider here, as Paul um, opens up for us the new life that we have um, in Christ, as new creations in Christ, what he's getting at here is, is, is first found in Jesus Christ, Christ the burden bearer. And in many ways, this helps us to open up what Paul means in verse 2 when he says, the law of Christ. What does Paul mean when he writes here, the law of Christ? One commentator had said this, that what Paul intends by this is the pattern of action exemplified by Christ, who bore the burdens of others in becoming a curse for us. Therein lies the fundamental paradigm for Christian 
ethics, right? So when Paul here speaks about fulfilling the law of Christ, he's saying that this law, this way of living, uh, was first and foremost found in Jesus Christ himself. Christ, the burden bearer. He, as one who has borne our curse, uh, but also our sins. And the idea here is, here is something that is found uh, all throughout the scriptures, especially, especially the Old Testament. Some of us here are probably familiar with the phrase, a scapegoat. Um, even if you're not um, well-versed in scriptures, the Bible, you probably heard this phrase, a scapegoat, right? It's often um, if somebody, <coughs> somebody has done something um, and they want to cast blame on somebody else, right? There's a scapegoat. <coughs> Sorry about that. <clears throat> There's a scapegoat um, who would bear that person's punishment. And that idea comes from the Old Testament itself. On the Day of Atonement, some of you are very familiar with this, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest of Israel would get a, a live goat and he'd put his hand on the goat, um, giving or imputing the sins of the people on this goat. And the goat would then be sent out into the wilderness. Um, away from the people of God. And it represented symbolically the sins of God's people being placed upon another and that, them, that, and that other person carrying, bearing their sins away from them, taking them away. Right? That was such a prominent picture that the people of God had for so long. The Day of Atonement, the scapegoat, as God's people realized and were, were to realize that if their sins were to be removed from them, one Another, somebody else would have to bear their sins, bear it and carry it away for them. That was at the heart of Old Testament life, the Day of Atonement. It was at the heart of God's covenant with his people, that God might be their God and that they might be his people. They might have fellowship and communion. There needed to be a scapegoat. There needed to be one who would bear their sins away. If they were to have fellowship with God, if they were to know God as their God, so God provided this for them. Out of his grace, out of his mercy, he provided them with this symbol. But as history progresses, we come to recognize that, of course, it was not ultimately this goat that was to bear the sins of God's people. It was not ultimately an animal uh, that was ultimately to take the sins of God's people and bring them away as far as the east is from the west from them. No, Isaiah 53, as we read earlier, reminds us that there was one who was to come, a person, conscious, intent, who would bear the sins of his people. If I could read those verses again, Isaiah 53, you can turn there with me also if you'd like to see them. In Isaiah 53, we hear uh, these words regarding not a goat, but regarding a person, a suffering servant. Notice what it says about him. Verse 3, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You might say, well, why is he in such a condition? Why is he so lowly? Why is he so despised? Why is he bearing such grief? Is, is, it, is it something he did? Is it something on account of, of his past? Is it something on account of who he is? What, what is it? Verse 4 gives us 
some of the most beautiful words that have ever been penned, words of salvation, words of life, because his grief, his, his being despised, his sorrow was not his own, but it was ours. Again, notice verse 4, surely, surely, certainly, ab- absolutely, he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, not ourselves. We esteemed him smitten by God and afflicted, not ourselves. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jump down to verse 10. It says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And then verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. All right, so Isaiah is looking forward to this day when one person would, would, would enter upon the scene of world history as the one to whom every scapegoat in the Old Testament pointed to. The suffering servant who would bear in himself once and for all the iniquity, the sins of his people. And what the Apostle Paul is proclaiming to us, and he proclaimed in his own day, and will continue to be proclaimed, is that the one Isaiah saw from afar, Paul has seen face to face. He has seen him risen, namely Jesus Christ. Isaiah looked forward to the day of Christ, the one who would bear the burdens of his people. Jesus Christ, the one who would be uh, the, 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 the scapegoat for his people. In theological terms, uh, this is often referred to as substitutionary atonement. Right? Christ, our substitute, atoning for our sins. Christ, our substitute, there on the cross. And this, in many ways, is is something that Paul, in the letter to the Galatians, has already been explaining to us. He's already been opening up the law of Christ, right? The law of Christ bearing the burdens of another, bearing the burden that is not my own. Jesus Christ himself has shown us this. It is the law of Christ bearing one another's burdens, substitutionary atonement, Christ in our place, Christ in our place. Where, there where I belong. And we see this in three places in Galatians as a kind of little review here. There, in these three places, Paul uses uh, the same Greek word. I don't often say, you know, this is the Greek word here, but at least it's important to know, understand that the Greek word used here is huper. And it's the word for, for a substitute. For, on behalf of, you can translate it as. And we see Paul use it three times in this letter in very key places for us to see that Paul is proclaiming the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. That Paul is proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the one who bears our sins and our burden. The first is Galatians 1 verse 4, which is a verse I think I've gone to every sermon in Galatians. And the reason is because it's, as we hopefully we can see, it's so fundamental to everything Paul is arguing. It's only a few words, but it's at the foundation of this whole letter. Notice what Galatians 1 verse 4 says. There, speaking of Christ, says that 
he gave himself, he gave himself for, huper, on behalf of our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. He is the suffering servant. He has given himself on our behalf for our sins in order that he might deliver us from the present evil age. Christ alone, not the law. The law has not given himself for you. The law stands outside of you, right? Paul is saying it demands of you, but it it cannot deliver you, cannot save you. But by faith alone in Christ. It's why Paul himself proclaimed Christ to the nations. It's why Paul proclaimed him, because Christ alone is that substitutionary atonement. Christ alone is the scapegoat. Christ alone is Isaiah's suffering servant by whose wounds we are healed. And so Paul there is saying that he gave himself on behalf of, in the place of, for our sins, right? The possessive hour are given to him, just to emphasize that point if you didn't catch it. So that's the first place Paul mentions it, right? At a very fundamental um, point in this letter. The second is in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Here, the Apostle Paul takes, right, the corporate our sins and he applies it personally to himself in the same way each of us, if we have believed in Jesus Christ, can apply this personally to ourselves as well by faith. Notice what Paul says. Galatians 2, verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself huper, for on behalf of me. Substitutionary atonement. Right, right. Paul as one, he gave himself for our sins to deliver us. And he gave himself for me, on behalf of me, in my place, Christ condemned. There he stood. Right, Paul is saying that not only do we think corporately that Christ bears the sins of his people, but we can then recognize that he bore my sin in my place. Christ, the burden bearer. Christ, the scapegoat. Christ, the suffering servant. Christ, the one who sets me free. And then thirdly, the third place Paul says the same thing is in chapter 3, verse 13. There Paul says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, who pair on behalf of in our place. He became a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, right? So our sins, our curse, Christ himself bore. And and this is at the heart, right? It's the energizing core, you could say, of what Paul means by the law of Christ. Exemplified to the utmost in Jesus Christ, having no sin of his own, being under no obligation, under the curse of God, yet he took all of it on our behalf. Christ, the burden bearer. This is the good news of the gospel. It's at the foundation of your life as a Christian. 
Right? Paul is saying uh, this is the bottom line, and, and therefore his exhortation, as it's going to come to us, to bear one another's burdens, is in light of what Christ has done for us, and in light of the fact that his Spirit dwells in us. The Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the one who bore the burden of others, dwells in you, dwells in us. And that therefore, on, on behalf of that, or on, on, the, on the basis of that, we are then called to bear one another's burdens. But right, this exhortation comes to us in Christ, the burden bearer. And so we look to him by faith, trusting in him alone, saying, yes, Christ has borne my sin. Christ died in my place. Christ is that suffering servant, the scapegoat. And I rest in him, no longer under the curse, no longer weighed down by my sin. He has borne it all for me in my place. Christ, the burden bearer. So that's fundamental uh, to understanding the law of Christ and Paul's point here, the idea of fulfilling the law of Christ. Our second point now is kind of a point of contrast, right? We've thought about Christ, the burden bearer. But here, Paul is dealing with opponents. He's dealing with those who are not inspired and enlivened by the spirit of Christ, the burden bearer, but instead whose teaching is inspired by uh, Satan, the burdener. Satan, the burdener, as the contrast to Christ. We see this in the very beginning. Galatians chapter 3, Satan in the form of a serpent, right, comes to Adam and Eve, burdens them with a certain way of living, burdens them rather than having them enjoy the freedom that God has placed them in to enjoy all things in his creation. He instead burdens them with a, with a wrong view of who, who God is and burdening them by, t- by um, deceiving them to think that the command God had given them was really meant to enslave them, right? Satan is twisting God's word that he might burden humanity. His intentions were certainly not good for Adam and Eve, right? He had no intention of saying, well, this no really will be good for you. No, as Jesus says, Satan has been a murderer and a liar from the very beginning. His intent, his motive was never their good, but ultimately their harm and their death. But right, so Satan comes to burden Adam and Eve and his, and all of their posterity, all of their children, all of the people born of Adam, born in darkness, born in this present evil age. It's why, uh, as Paul speaks about the present evil age in Galatians 1, right, this age is marked by burden. It's marked by being weighed down. It's marked not by caring for one another and bearing one another's burdens, but it's marked by divisiveness. It's marked by cutting and biting and fighting and consuming. It's it's what we experience around us every day. This is the world Paul is speaking to. It's our own world, uh, even at present. And so it's filled with people burdened and burdening one another. Moved by Satan, the burdener. And it's quite interesting that Paul will also use this kind of serpent language uh, throughout Galatians. Uh, reflecting something of, this, of, 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 this, of Satan's influence behind the false teaching that is coming to Galatia. These false teachers are coming in and saying, you must do this. You must keep these uh, strict regulations that once uh, belonged to the Mosaic Covenant. You must do these certain requirements if you're to uh, have fellowship with God. 
right? They're burdening people who have been set free with regulations. And we've talked about this already, how we're not called then to burden one another. Uh, instead, Paul says earlier in chapter 5, we're to be the slave to, of one another, right? I am not standing over you as your master, but as, as your slave, as your servant under you. That's our posture towards one another uh, in the church. But Satan, right, desires to burden. And those inspired by Satan desire to stand over, to master, to control. Think of the Lord of the Rings, right? The ring of power meant to control, meant to conquer, meant to um, overwhelm somebody, to do, have them do their bidding, right? It's, it's the exact thing that Satan desires, a ring of power to control and to enslave And those inspired by that, those who wear the ring and desire the ring, are those who burden one another. Satan, the burdener. And again, it reflects the same language, the serpent uh, theme that we find in Galatians. Here are these, uh, the two verses. Galatians 2 verse 4. Notice what it says there um, regarding um, a certain situation that Paul had encountered uh, when uh, he was traveling. And notice what it says, verse 4. He says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in, you could even translate that maybe as slithered, who slithered in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, right? So these false teachers come in, and specifically in that context that Paul's writing about, they were demanding that Titus, who was with Paul, be circumcised. Now, we've spoken about this already a lot. I won't go into the details again. But the reason for that was that circumcision was a sign of God's people for a long time. But circumcision, the, the, as a covenant sign, fell away with the coming of Christ. It always pointed to his death on the cross, him being cut off for us. But now they're seeking to re, uh, reinstitute that. They're seeking to burden God's people again and saying, Titus must be circumcised. And Paul is saying that such are false brothers who slithered in in order to spy out their freedom. Also in Galatians 5, verse 15, we get also this serpent language, the language of the burdener. There in verse 15 of chapter 5, it says, If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Here, you kind of get the imagery of a snake. Right? A snake will bite to paralyze or to still whatever foe or you know, food they're trying to eat. <clears throat> So that you know, see that you do not bite and devour one another and are not consumed by one another. It's serpent language. Again, the false teachers are reflecting the, the archetypal, the, the primal serpent, Satan himself, in their burdening of one another. Rather than looking toward one another, desiring restoration, desiring that they be one, desiring that they have fellowship, they were out looking, spying, right? You can kind of... Imagine the scene, right? Somebody uh, around the corner of the building, right? Sneaking and, and, and trailing these people to find them, catch them in something. One, so they can see themselves as more self-righteous. And two, that they then can condemn their brother. That was their desire, ultimately. The desire of the serpent, the desire of the burdener. And so you get this kind of culture developing where people are spying on one another. People are are looking over their shoulder. People are afraid 
of their own brothers and sisters in the church. Paul, this is why Paul is, is so intense in, in this letter, because it literally is from hell. Hell itself infiltrating the church. People afraid of one another, people biting one another, cutting and, and devouring. So Paul is saying that this is not to be among the church. We are not to seek to master one another. And we've said this before, right? It's not just a matter of, I don't think anybody here is forcing anyone to be circumcised, right? And looking down on anybody, right? That's not what we're taking place here. But, right, but there is often a temptation to take something that we think is wise and something that we think is helpful for us and begin to say, well, my brother and sister must do this as well. I, I, you know, my life, you know, I do my devotions um, one hour every morning plus prayer and, and therefore if my brother and sister, if they're not doing this, well, I'm looking down upon them, right? Or I send my kids to this specific school or I treat my wife and do this specific, this nice thing for her and therefore everybody else must do the same thing, right? We, we can burden one another, but, but there's freedom in Christ, and we're not to take that position of burdening, but of uh, those who serve and those, as we're going to see, to carry the burdens of one another, right? And so we've seen a, a, a very strong contrast, right? Christ, the burden bearer. Christ, the one who takes our sins. Christ, who takes all of them to the cross. But Satan, the burdener. And the question then, as Paul is is desiring of a people that they might be formed into Christ, that they might have Christ formed in them, as he says later in the letter, he's desiring, of course, that the Spirit of Christ, the burden bearer, would, would excel in the church. The Spirit of Christ, the burden bearer who's been given to us, would then begin to dictate, maybe not the best word to use, but to dictate our lives as we bear one another's burdens rather than being burdeners. That we would be slaves of one another rather than seeking to be masters. This is the dynamic of the church as a new creation. No longer reflecting the divisiveness of the world, but reflecting this desire to love sacrificially one another. This is the law of Christ that Paul is talking about here. And so we've seen Christ the burden bearer, Satan the burdener, And then thirdly, we want to then think about then the church, us, called to be burden bearers in Christ. And this, as I've said, is the fruit of the Spirit, right? It's why Paul will now highlight one of the fruits of the Spirit, namely gentleness, right? There he says in verse 1 of chapter 6, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual, you might even capitalize that. You who are filled with the Spirit of Christ. You who know Christ, belong to Him, and have had the Spirit of Christ sent into your heart, testifying that you are a son of God. Those who are spiritual should restore Him in a spirit of gentleness. Remember, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, right? And so Paul here is saying that unlike the false teachers, right, because they're spying and trying to catch one another— to feel good about themselves, right? It's often, um, you know, it's kind of a, a temptation I think we've all faced. I can think of an example. Um, when I was at seminary, um, we would preach sermons in class, and um, we would, we would uh, to, to our other students in the class, 
And um, often, if you were up next, the person going before you, right, you often have this idea, well, I really hope they do poorly so that my sermon at least sounds decent compared to what they just heard, right? Like there's, now, that's awful, right? I mean, specifically in seminaries, there are men being trained for ministry. Our desire should be that we all excel in preaching Christ and making him known. But you're up there and you have this view of yourself at the center of, of what you desire, right? And you're like, I hope they fail so I look better. And that's what these false teachers are doing. You could probably, some people are laughing. I'm hoping it's because you have examples in your own life uh, as well, not just mine. But um, right, that's what's going on in Galatia, right? They're, they're desiring to catch one another, right? They're handing the cookie jar of sin and saying, I got you. And it makes them feel better about themselves, right? And, and so Paul is saying, unlike those spying out one another's freedom and trying to catch them in sin, instead, as he says here, if anyone is caught, right, if somebody, if your brother or sister is caught in sin, in a transgression, in, in some uh, way in which they've rebelled against God or they've broken God's will, you should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Not condemnation, but restoration should be our ultimate desire, right, for our brother and our sister who are caught in sin. And this reflects the spirit of Christ, the burden bearer. He goes on to say, Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted as well. So he's saying, right, don't just be naive and think your brother is caught in sin. You go to him, and you yourself then be ensnared by this. He might very much have in mind the teaching of the, of the false teachers who were very de- deceitful, right? Going to restore your brother, and then in the process, you've now been deceived yourself. He's saying, be careful, but seek that your brother be restored. Maybe your brother was led astray by these false teachers. Maybe they they went after uh, the things that these false teachers were promoting. And so as you go to restore them as your ultimate desire, not as a competition, right, but as brothers and sisters in the family, as you desire their restoration, you yourself just keep watch on yourself that you're not tempted as well. And then he says in verse 2, bear one another's burdens. Again, that's the heart of it, right? It's the heart of Christ. It's the spirit of Christ. Not seeking to burden, but to bear one another's burdens. And I can testify to the glory of Christ and his work by his spirit in this church that we see this in many ways. The many ways in which people have been sacrificing for one another in small ways and big ways is very evident here. And so then the exhortation still goes out that may this abound more and more here. May, may you look for ways, and as you see your brother and your sister maybe struggling, your brother and your sister going through something, uh, a difficult time, willing to sacrifice comfort, time, that you might help bear their burdens. Now, of course, you're not atoning like Christ did for the sins of your brother and sister, right? They have already been atoned for in Christ. But you are called to come alongside your brother, along, alongside your sister, and help carry them and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's to be the kind of way of living that's to prosper in the church. Again, a contrast to the kind of King of Hill mentality, get ahead of everybody in the world around me. Instead, as a slave of all, as a servant of all, I come under my brother and I serve them and I help bear their burden. That's what we are ultimately called to do. Paul then shifts in verse uh, 3, right, so he's talking about you and your, your responsibility towards your brother, right? You are your brother's keeper. You are to bear your brother's burdens. 
And now he also then reflects on a proper view of self, right? A proper view of my brother, and now a proper view of myself, right? He says, if anyone thinks he is something, Paul once thought he was something, right? Paul once thought he had everything. He testifies to that earlier, right, in chapter 1, where he says in um, verse uh, 13, he says, you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how he persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. He thought he was doing God's will. He thought he was valuable to God by doing that. Of course, he was wrong. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So zealous, extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father, right? Paul thought he was something. And the idea here is that Paul thought he had value in this present world. And he did. In many ways, in the present evil age, right, he had some value. But Paul's whole point is that our value system changes in Christ. What counts as being something, what counts as having value in the present evil age is different than what counts as value in the new creation that Paul holds out to us. It's a different economy. I don't know if I've ever used this uh, illustration here, but maybe you can think about this. Um, in uh, the previous church I was at, in uh, Pompton Plains, New Jersey, the URC there, um, they had a kind of, you can call it a Sunday school economy. Uh, and so the children would maybe recite a, a Bible verse, they'd uh, show their teacher uh, the notes they took during the sermon, and they would receive uh, a certain, uh, I forget what exactly they were called, it was like a dollar, but it wasn't a real dollar, it was a fake, you know, printed thing. And if they collected enough of those little dollars, uh, uh, Sunday school dollars, we'll call them, they could use them to purchase uh, maybe a, a cover for their Bible or a, a pen or whatever it might be, right? There was a certain economy in Sunday school for these children. Now, I know some of the children, imagine you had some of those Sunday school dollars and uh, you go to your favorite ice cream shop around the corner. You order a big cone, I don't know, Oreo ice cream sounds good right now. And, um, <laughs> that sounds really good. But, um, <laughs> And the, you know, the, the, the girl behind the counter hands you the cone and she says, you know, that'll be $3. Pull out your Sunday school economy dollars. You place them on the counter. Is she going to accept them? No, of course not, right? They, they, they had value, but only in a certain context. And, and that's what Paul's point is saying as well. Like, my previous life had value, but only in the context of the present age. It had no value in the new creation. It had no transfer over. And so now the values and the economy of the Christian is totally different. And so Paul is saying that when we think about ourselves, we need to think about ourselves in that way. It's the same thing as Jesus said when he said that we are to store up for ourselves treasure in heaven. It's not a bank account, right? When we store up treasure in heaven, it's different kind of treasure. It's different kind of value, values. And so Paul is saying that we are to have a right view of ourselves, to view ourselves as those who belong to the new creation. And so if we think we are something when we're nothing, right? If we think we are something, but it's only just a matter of that because we have value in the present age, but nothing of the fruit of the new creation, well, then you, you've deceived yourself, he says, right? It's a warning that Paul gives. Our value system must be defined by the new creation which Christ has brought about because you belong to him. And that's where you are ultimately headed. It's what ultimately your heart desires and values. Paul goes on to say in verse 4, 
He says, but let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Again, right? The same idea of boasting, of saying, thank you, Lord, that I am not like this sinner. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this person. Thank you, Lord, that I don't struggle with this. Paul's saying the reason for boasting won't be in yourself anymore. It won't be in, um, in, in your neighbor, but in, in yourself. In what God has done in you. In what God has been producing in you by the, as the fruit of the Spirit. That's something we'll boast in. Again, not for my own glory or that my, for my own namesake, but because that what is in me is produced by the work of Christ in me, by his Spirit. So it's not a matter of comparing myself then to boast, but a matter of looking at what God is doing in me and boasting in that, because it's ultimately boasting um, in the Lord. And as it says at the end, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled on how do we relate this to each will bear its own load, to bear one another's burdens. Um, how do we relate these two? Well, Paul is saying, again, the dynamic in the church is to bear one another's burdens. Like, that's our, the way we relate to each other. Here in verse 5, it seems that he has in mind the final judgment, right? When you do stand before the Lord, right, your brother and your sister won't be able to bear your burden for you. You'll bear your own before the throne of God, before the judgment seat of the Lord. And those who have had their burdens borne by Christ already will receive that, that wonderful, glorious declaration, right? Not guilty. Come into the uh, joy of your master. But those who, who have not cast their burdens on Christ, those who have not believed in Jesus Christ will come before that judgment seat with their sin. And there's no more scary place to be than that. And scary is an understatement, right? To be before the judge of all the earth, to be before the Lord your maker with your sin, there's no scarier place. And so Christ today, before that day, today he calls you to, to cast your burdens upon the Lord freely, without payment, without cause. Right? Right? Come before the Lord. Believe upon his name. Trust in him as the one who has borne your sins on the cross and in who, by whose wounds you truly are healed. This is the calling that we're, again, to grow in and to be praying for in our church. This is the kind of dynamic. Because when we have this self-righteous view, right, if we think we relate to God by the basis of our works, then, yeah, we're going to be self-righteous towards one another. But when we know that we've been saved by grace alone, by, by, by a scapegoat, by Christ who has borne our grief, our sorrow, our sin, by grace alone, well, then we will be gracious towards one another. It's the natural response. Right? If God has been so gracious to me, why would I be so hard on my brother and sister? If Christ has served me, who am I to stand over those who belong to Christ? If the Spirit of Christ dwells in me, well, then I am then called to bear the burden of my brother and my sister, my neighbor here. This is the dynamic of life in the church, and it's beautiful. It's, it, it causes life to grow, right? The present evil age marked by divisiveness and cutting and biting in the serpent. It's death, right? It's ultimately death, consuming one another, but life is found in the church, the life of Christ as we bear one another's burdens. Amen. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been so gracious to us, not treating us as our sins deserve, but providing for us a scapegoat, providing for us your own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who bore our sins in his body on the cross, who became a curse for us on our behalf. Father, may you strengthen our faith in Jesus Christ. And as his Spirit dwells in us, help us then to live out a life that pleases him and a life that shows that we belong to him. May we not devour and bite in, uh, each other, uh, but instead may we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.